This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are we going to drop mandatory masking in hospitals and healthcare environments? British Columbia just did. I think you can answer this question two ways. Will it happen? Should it happen? You might feel differently. You might say it should, but it won't. It shouldn't, but it will. Go whichever way you want with it. You might even say, Greg, it shouldn't happen and it won't happen anytime soon. Like, I don't know how far we want to advance our cause, whether we say in September, if you go in to just get a checkup, just get a checkup. Are you seeing a doctor that's in a mask? I mean, I know that people are getting checkups like physicals and people are in full shield, facial shields, gowns, the PPE, full on PPE. Now, I don't know whether patients want that or not. I'm who's for me to say. I just know they're dropping it in BC, so I'm asking you if you think we should do the same. Remember where we were. There was a huge push and some erroneous information in November that we were going back to masking. I'm not sure where, because again, there's been a universal mask mandate in healthcare settings now for 37 months, close to 38 months. BC is going to drop it, as we just noted. Um, there may be different stories in long-term care, but I would make the case we're at a point now where we change some of these things. Now, um, there w- there will always be things we look at and and say, why did that happen in the first place? There will always be those things. You think I'm pretty passionate about um, children wearing masks, and I was quite loud about it a year ago at this time. Well, mothers were made to give birth with masks on. Like, we did that. Should we have... I would argue no. You might argue no. Maybe you'd argue yes. I'm asking about where we're going now. California is different in that they're allowing their hospitals to pick and choose as it is. We've done this for a thousand days, 1000 days. And Europe dropped this ages ago. And many American states dropped this ages ago. Where do you think we go in Ontario with mask mandates in healthcare settings? You might work in healthcare. And tell me that you want to keep wearing one. That's okay. My thought, if you gave, if you actually surveyed healthcare workers on this, four to five would say, dump it, dump it. I've got the, I've got the ability to stay home if I'm sick. I've got the ability to wear one if I'm sick. If I think I'm working with a sick colleague, I can pop one on. But I'm hearing constantly from nurses and healthcare workers of all varieties that they'd like this to stop. I don't think it's a reason people are leaving the industry. I I don't think that, but I also think this is the one thing I've heard, the constant wearing. I've never had to do this, and maybe you haven't either. Maybe you haven't had to wear one your entire day at your job, eight-hour shift, 12-hour shift, a 14-hour shift even. Um, I've had to pop one on walking in hallways. I've had to pop one on walking to bathrooms. Um, but you'll be shocked to know I've never done a radio show wearing a, a, a KN95 because it won't sound like this and you won't understand it. So I can't do it that way. I can't do it that way. I guess I, I guess the longest continuous time is is on an airplane for five hours. I guess that's it. But then there's lowering to add and lowering to or lowering to eat and lowering to drink. And I'd say even in long term care, people ask those questions. The residents never are masked. And I don't think they should be given the circumstances, but I'd make the case that it's really important for residents in retirement homes and certainly in long-term care, see their loved ones after, after 37 months. Let them see our faces. Let them read our lips. 
let them hear us better. Um, in non-emergency times, that's what we did. And we have to do right by, in, in their remaining months and years, the people that raised us and the people that raised our parents, depending on your age, we have to do right by them. And I think families should get that choice from this point on. And I would I would make that case uh, about a year ago. Um, I get a message from Martin. Hey, Greg, healthcare worker here. I'm not afraid to say I can make a reasonable decision when to mask or when not to. Uh, Chris writes, I'm, an an- I'm as anti-mandate as they come, but I wouldn't be opposed to keeping them considering the places are full of people who are compromised for one reason or another, even without COVID-19 in the equation. All I'd respond is with, well, but when? Is masking now, masking forever? I mean, these were sort of glib questions 18 months ago, 24 months ago. They were silly questions before vaccination. But that's not where we are right now. So we're talking about the here and now and where we're going. BC's dropping them. Will we, should we as well? Joe, let me get to you first. You're on 640 Toronto. Toronto Today, thanks for the phone call. You go right ahead. Hi, Greg. Um, You know, everybody talks about people being immune compromised, but let's not forget people were immune compromised before COVID. You know, if somebody had the flu, they would, you know, be exposed to that. Now, under certain situations, I think people should have the choice to wear masks. But as I was saying to your screener, Mm -hmm. if I go to my optometrist, I have to wear a mask. But then I can go on a TTC and sit beside someone that's going to cough all over me. You're going to be exposed to whatever is out there, uh, regardless of whether you're wearing a mask at your dentist, at your optometrist, or at the hospital, per se. So you're not going to stop this. This is the real point, whether yeah. you're masking or not. Yeah, I think I think that's that's where we're at now. This is not this is not June. Listen, by the way, you, if I played you audio of me yelling for, for mayors to enact mask mandates in June, I thought it was necessary. I thought it was necessary to make masks of all kinds, including cloth, uh, mandatory on the TTC. But that's June of 2020. And as I've pointed out a million times over, a non-pharmaceutical intervention, if you're to enact a non-pharmaceutical intervention and you want to prevent and or control COVID, by this point, the burden is on you to prove with data that it works. Data, data, whatever. The burden is on the NPI, the person recommending it, suggesting it, impacting it onto your lives. You must prove it works. This is a criminal trial where you must prove guilt. You can't be unsure about it. 36, 37 months in, you have the burden of proof on you. I don't have to prove it doesn't work. You have to prove it does work. That's how this works. That's how NPIs operate. And we've just forgotten that since the beginning of time. And by the way, if masks worked prior to 2019 to stop respiratory, to stop uh, uh, airborne viruses, I think someone would have raised their hand and said, guess what we should use here to, to, you know, help during flu season. And we didn't do that in North America or Western society. We just didn't. Those are facts. Bill, thanks for the phone call. You're on 640 Toronto, Toronto today. I, I just can't even believe that we're still having these kind of conversations. The mask is useless it always has been always will be i mean unless you're in a surgical situation where you sterilized yourself and they're wearing the r9 or whatever mask it is they wear in surgery arenas Mm -hmm. what's the what's the deal you know what 
I mean, wearing mask long term, I'm positive. You're breathing in your own carbon dioxide. It can't be healthy for you. Well, imagine a woman giving birth in a mask. Like, that's the most infuriating thing well, I can I, imagine. I, I'm so glad I didn't have to make that decision. And so glad I didn't have to rant and rave about that in my own life. You know what? It's, you know what? it's just you get, the, you get a, a certain a segment of the society that as soon as anything goes wrong, they freak out. And they're looking and, oh, someone in, in, that they feel is in charge mm-hmm. says, we got to do this. And everybody runs to it. And everybody runs and to it. Don't even, they're not... The last thing we should be doing is trusting big pharmaceutical companies. Well, it's not even like I, I would make the case that we had a different conversation because pharmaceutical companies aren't really benefiting from masking. If anything, they wanted the vaccine to mean more in your life than the mask. And I understand that. Again, I don't have a lot of regrets about my decisions uh, where I turned on something in a good way and something made more sense to me than it used to. But uh, Julia writes, as someone who worked in nursing prior to COVID, during H1N1, we did not mask. As a vulnerable um, POTS patient, compulsory masking has now caused me to have chronic migraine headaches and develop vocal cord dysfunction, and I'm still being forced to mask. So she doesn't like it. She wants it dropped. She works in the healthcare industry. She might know more than me or a newspaper columnist or a politician. She just might. How about that? David, I want to get to as many calls as I can. Thanks for the phone call. Go right ahead. I think we just need to, we all know ourselves and, and how susceptible we are to the common colds and stuff like that. And we just have to respect each other's decisions. You know, I, I got COVID. I, I was unvaccinated. I didn't even have as much as a cough, but I kept testing positive. And it drove me nuts that I had to stay home and, and isolate when, you know, and, but I've had friends that obviously had the polar opposite. And, and just so you know, like I'm, I come from a two person working household and we had a daughter that she's a kindergartner and from September to December, she never went more than four days without getting sick at school. So we masked her after the holidays and guess what? She hasn't missed a day yet. Now after March break, cause we're hoping we, she's, she's taking her mask off. It's been what a week or so. Yeah. She's homesick today. You know, it's, we just got to respect we know our, we know each other's you know we know our own immune systems and let's just stop judging and try to go about our lives and let whoever wants to do whatever they want to do. I, I think I, I think that's the way forward. And I, I, I know there'd be a lot longer conversation about, well, when was the point that we should have done that? But we're talking about right now. Remember at this time last year, it was loud. It was loud with people wanting mandates um, to continue. And we moved along and um, and like I, I don't even want to de-emphasize how well it went, but it went well. And we were going to get blasted with RSV and we were going to get blasted with flu. Why? Because we hadn't been exposed to those pathogens for ages. We hadn't been places. We hadn't been in airports. 20,000 of us weren't at a lot of Leafs and Raptors games together and concerts and all that stuff. So um, there is an element of immunity debt as if that term hadn't been utilized properly prior to then. Like it was some made up term. I again, like the, the, the books, the Bibles we could write about what was wrong and what wasn't. It's crazy. Tom, thanks for the phone call. Go right ahead. Uh, I think in certain situations, they definitely should not have masks on. For instance, my wife's a mental health nurse at the hospital, and it's so much more personal when you're trying to talk to a mentally ill patient. Oh, my gosh. If you're not not wearing a mask, they could see your face. They could see how true you are. And she sees theirs. Like, she wants to see theirs. 
Absolutely. As well as I think, too, when the doctors go around after surgery, you know, doctors, nurses go around, give updates to patients. I think that's a good time as well because you look so much more sincere without a mask versus this face covering that is like covering from your nose down. So there's a little bit of, of I think, um, maybe not as trustworthiness when you're wearing a mask. Versus, here's my face, I'm open to you, and please, let's talk. Hey, Tom, was there a point where she came home and just said, I don't want to do this anymore? Was there sort of a a turn where she's like, I've done it long enough, I can't, I I don't want to keep doing this? No, she's true to her work, actually. Mm -hmm. She is, that's why she went into mental health. Mm -hmm. But you were talking about back in the 80s. That's why she went into this job, because she genuinely wants to help people, and the way she can help people the most is by this profession in her mind. Thanks for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, Melissa writes me um, on Twitter. Uh, she's a healthcare worker. She doesn't want me to say what she does, but she says, I've chosen to work at a clinic where masks are not required 24-7. Healthcare workers are tired of wearing masks and it was time for a change. Okay, that's again, that's one person's um, opinion. I, as I said, the NPI, the non-pharmaceutical intervention, the burden's on you to prove it works. It's not on everybody else to prove after 37 months that it may not or it doesn't. Pete, thanks for the phone call. You're on the air. Go right ahead. How are you doing, Greg? Good, thank you. Um, I work in healthcare. I guess the ignorance about masks drives me kind of crazy. I believe that it is completely your own choice whether you want to wear them or not. But wearing a P100 or an N95 absolutely works to protect you. Yeah. The, the biggest issue I have is that, that you've got people that are, like the gentleman before, was upset that he tested positive, didn't have much of a, even a cough, but was mad that he had to stay at home. The biggest problem I have is there's so many people that are sick as dogs that are out on public transit and whatever, that you're obligated to protect yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do get that. Yeah, I understand that. So uh, as a paramedic, uh, every year I have to be fit tested for an N95 or P100. Now, through COVID, we were obligated to wear those anytime we were in contact with uh, a patient of any type or even sitting in the ambulance with our partner, okay? Um, I didn't get a cold or anything for almost three years because of this, right? Because I, I, I just simply know that it works, but it's, not, it, it, it's a balancing act. Do you want to wear it all the time? Of course not. But there are circumstances that I'm in that I have to wear one. So it, it gets, let's say it gets cleared out May 1st. Would you, would you wear it sometime and not others, depending on your circumstances? Cleared out as far as like they, they, they drop. One? Yeah, they drop it. They absolutely drop a mandate and say, it's all your choice. You're a paramedic, Pete. You can do whatever you want. You can wear one or you, you don't have to outdoors or indoors. What would you do? But, but this is the fallacy. We've been covered by a mandatory uh, thing for a long time. It's not just because of COVID. Now COVID strengthened it quite a bit, but if I have a patient who there is a suspected communicable disease that can be transmitted that way, I have to wear my PPE. Right. And if I don't, if I choose not to, one, I'd get reprimanded if they found out. But if I got yeah. sick, they wouldn't cover me because it's, it's in the standard operating procedures that you make sure that you, you gown up, glove up, do whatever. You know, when I first started, people didn't even wear gloves when they were working around blood and that sort of thing. Yeah. Obviously, wearing gloves works. Wearing a mask works. Wearing splash shield works. It it it's your personal choice if you're not working in healthcare. And I don't think it's a big deal for people behind desks and you know working in in controlled settings. But you've got people walking in off the street, going up to a triage nurse, 
she's nuts not to wear a mask. But it's you're right. You're right. And it's the but it's, it always felt the strangest thing to walk into a, an, an environment and have a I could have a, a, an N95 with me. And they say, please take that off and put one of our blue surgical masks on at, at the long term care home. I'm like, this is madness. Who do I who do I yeah, sp- no, who do I, I speak agree. to about this? Where is the data that proves this is a better thing for me to do? It doesn't exist. I agree, but there was the whole thing that started off that people who wear cloth masks or wear whatever, mm-hmm. and now you're going into a new setting, uh, you know, you go to give blood. They say, please take one of our masks, because they know it's it's new and fresh and has yeah. been worn for seven weeks. I've got two of them hanging on the shift knob in my car yeah. that I had sitting there for two months, and I put them on when I need to. My, my brother-in-law, unfortunately, had uh, surgery at Sunnybrook not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I drove them, and... I, because I've been out of wearing a mask all the time, I walked in and I didn't even think about it. And I realized while I was sitting in the waiting room, I'm the only one not masked. Nobody came over and told me to, but I, I realized that I, I've gotten used to not wearing them. You I got gotcha. you. Know I, mean? I so. got gotcha. you. Hey, Pete, I got a blast. Thanks for doing what you do. And I appreciate you checking in. Um, person text, I've been going to the same x-ray clinic for 20 years. If you're there for a chest x-ray, you've been required to wear a mask. I mean, again, I want a doctor to feel comfortable too. If I see a doctor, I, there is that awkward moment where it's like, do you want me to put a mask on? Like we were doing that with haircuts and we were doing that with other th- scenarios where not not a restaurant, because, again, I think we could get past the uh, the hygiene theater of restaurants, bars, anywhere where you're eating and drinking. We just rendered it irrelevant at that point in time. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're very pleased to welcome in. Mayoral candidate uh, for the city of Toronto. That just sounds great uh, to a lot of people's ears. Mitzi Hunter, who's the current MPP for Scarborough Guildwood. It's great to have you in again. Thanks for coming. In. It's great to be here as well. You were in uh, what, Little Italy Friday, beaches on Sunday. Easter's that great time of year. There's a, a fashion. We get a little more adventurous with our fashion on Easter weekend, yeah, right? A little brighter, a little cheerier. <laughs> get rid of the grays and the, and, the, and the darker tones. Brighten it up with the colors a little bit on the... On the uh, on the fashion front, um, you've also got really a, a really important platform you're announcing this morning when it comes to climate change. And I know people think, well, that's a that's a global issue, and sometimes that's a federal issue. But I'd even refer to like last Wednesday when we had um you know a bit of a rainfall in the morning, and all of a sudden felt like within the snap of a finger, College Streets got you know a flood and and water up to people's like up to people's calves. So some of this is the city response and some of this is stuff that is just long overdue to handle, not necessarily curbing climate change, but how a, a major city reacts to it. Yeah, and it's um, it's something that is affecting all of us. You know, we, we kind of like the nice warm weather that we're experiencing this week. But the reality is, is that uh, we're going to have more and more extreme weather events. They're not going to be as rare as, you know, every 100 years you get a major storm. It's actually going to be happening much, much more frequently. And as a city, we have to make sure that uh, people and property are protected. So some of that is residential flood protection. I mean, businesses as well would factor in, especially in these um, in these busy downtown streets and, and even closer to the suburbs. Um, what would a Mitzi Hunter mayorship do to help protect residents from floods? Yeah, so I've uh, issued a three-point um, plan that uh, really allows for us to mitigate against uh, that risk, particularly of flooding and extreme heat, um, the two of which uh, are, are definitely um 
likely to occur. We've seen yeah. what happened uh, out in BC, um, you know, loss of life. Um, and, and so we want to make sure that we protect people who are the most vulnerable, the most at risk um, of these incidences occurring, uh, because we know that there will be these extreme weather incidences. Um, my three-point uh, plan um, really looks at how do we save lives and how do we uh, save millions of dollars by just taking some very simple preventative measures, particularly when it comes to flooding. Mm. Air conditioning ends up being such a huge issue in the summer. And, uh, you know, we're, we're Canada. We don't, <laughs> we don't need to put the AC on full blast as much as uh, other countries and other, even other areas of North America. But here in Toronto, um, it does matter. It gets more humid in the city than ever. Um, we have people with, with lower incomes. We have seniors uh, living alone. That was such a concern during the pandemic is thinking, well, the government's telling you not to go outside. But they're inside without any air conditioning like there have to be means to protect our more vulnerable people in those hot, hot days and hot nights as well. Yeah. And and some of the best practices is that we need to check on those people, you know, people who are vulnerable, people, um, the elderly Mm -hmm. and uh, and ensure that they have a fan or some sort of uh, way to cool themselves uh, or get them to a cooling center if they don't. Um, you know, this is about making sure that uh, that people are kept safe and uh, and that we are responding. You know, we know that we want to actually uh, take major steps to reduce uh, greenhouse gases and uh, the effects of climate change. Uh, at the same time, you know, we have to make sure that we protect people today. Um, and you're going to create a new position um, with city government. Tell us about that Um what what the position is and and almost what the person what he or she has to bring in terms of experience and what you would expect them to do yeah, so um, I'm proposing that we create the position of chief resiliency officer. And this is someone who will have the expertise uh, required, uh, looking at uh, things that we can do on a proactive basis um, to reduce uh, flooding, um, maybe how ice is melting and uh, causing um, jams that, uh, that, that impact flooding, uh, making sure that the extreme heat um, is responded to in, uh, in a timely way. And, and so this is, this is a, a way of Toronto to be proactive and have a permanent person with the expertise that can help to advise uh, the city in terms of its decision and its responses to make sure that people are kept safe in our city. What are the things you see um, that the city has struggled with with weather? I I always think there's going to be days, I mean, the massive snowstorm last January is a day where you say, well, whatever plans I had are are, are probably out the window. Schools are going to be canceled. I I won't go into the office. But there still has to be, you know, a level of infrastructure that we, we can't let infrastructure get paralyzed by major weather events. And you nailed it. These are happening a lot more often, even if it's three or four times a year. That's different than once every eight or nine years. What are you seeing that the city of Toronto hasn't has done well or hasn't done well in your observation? Well, you know, it's it's big incidences uh, like the flash flooding that you mentioned. Uh, there's definitely risk to property, uh, but it's also the basement flooding as well. And the city does have a program that allows residents to access a $3,400 um, rebate to to provide, mm. um, you know, things like sump pumps and, uh, and mitigation efforts, very simple things that they could do in the spring and in the fall. But what we know is that people have to be reminded. And uh, and so what I'm proposing is that we do have a, an ongoing continuous program that we remind people because we also have, you know, thousands of people who live in basements. And so we want to make sure that their uh, pr- property and, um, and and that their space is protected as well. And, and so, 
you know, this is about recognizing that climate change is real. It is something mm -hmm. that is happening. And these weather effects are going to affect the city of Toronto. Uh, we all remember, you know, there was that uh, flash flooding that happened on the Don Valley Parkway that, uh, you know, like 1,200 people were, actually 1,400 people were stuck on the GO train. I remember that footage where they're getting people yeah. out of the windows out with ladders windows. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, we want to make sure that uh, that things like that don't happen. Uh, when we have flooding, it's a huge loss of property. It's like $4,300 costs um, in terms of the damage. So it's better that we be proactive um, mm. rather than reactive because the recovery costs more. How do we all find that that sort of it's difficult to find all of us in that same place with regard to the environment? Um, your party and the NDP have been critical of the Ford government for not doing enough for the environment. There have been people critical of your party at the federal level for sort of hitting the common man and woman with the carbon tax. Like it's it is it, you're right. Climate change is real. There's very few people that deny that. I think we all just look at different pathways to sort of get to the same place and, and just do what we can. So much of it is out of Canada's control, given where global emissions are. How do we how do we find a way to work with the other levels of government to to just come to the come to some kind of happy medium? I think the the reality is, is that we need to do more. And, um, you know, even just as I am moving forward with my um, run to be the mayor of Toronto, you know, this is something that I want to make sure that uh, that Toronto is um, doing its part when it comes to um, reducing its effects on the planet. Um, this is about future generations. And it's also about, you know, how people live in our city and um, and that resiliency that we need to have to respond to what's real. You know, when something like the ice storm um, that just happened in, um, in eastern Ontario and in Quebec, you know, we've got thousands of people that have no power and they're, they're you know, already there has been loss of life, in fact. And uh, and so so people expect their governments at all levels uh, to to be responsible and to to make sure that that they're kept safe, um, mm. as safe as possible. You know, I, I want to thank our Toronto Hydro crews that are, are there or on their way, way there to help uh, in the recovery. Uh, but recovery costs. It, there's, yeah. there's a risk to life and property. And we need to take steps to try to avoid this as much as possible. And there are simple things that we can do as, as residents uh, to protect our homes. Um, and then there is much broader things that governments uh, need to do uh, to protect people. You're right about the work. And, and there's always there's always a next time, isn't there? I think about the ice storm we had in Toronto in late 13 going into forces right around Christmas time. And I think it was a Saturday night. And all of a sudden, all these trees like trees were destroyed in residences. But I'd see the same crews. I'd pass them at 8 a.m. And, and you know, then driving my kids around somewhere at night. I see the same people out there at 9 p.m. They were working 13, 14 hour shifts, men and women to get this done and, and get power back restored. Yeah, I remember that really well, Greg, because <laughs> I was just elected. Yeah, yeah, um, that's and, right. And this happened in December of 2013. And because I remember going out um, into my communities in, in Guildwood and trees were down. Um, and right, I remember right at Lawrence and Kingston Road, um, there were a number of uh, Toronto community housing buildings that were down and there were vulnerable people there, people who really relied on the food in their fridge. And 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 we had to respond and, yeah. and do that in a massive way. So so we we have these incidences that are occurring and uh, the reality is that they're happening more frequently. So we need to take steps um, as much as possible. I think it's an, an important platform and I think there's an onus on, on the other candidates to respond and match uh, for sure what you're doing. Let's see, Hunter Scarborough, Guildwood MPP. Um, people are texting in uh, reaction 
to some of what we were talking about with uh, with a climate change uh, proposal and things we can do to respond. Um, and they are such important things. And people make the point, of course, the environment and transit factors in and then transit factors in with safety. Like like Mitzi, I made the point a few times. I think this is going to be a, a tough city to drive around in the next few years. I'm not sure there's anything any candidate can do about that. But working transit, functional transit, safe transit, that's all. I don't know if it's the biggest issue, but some of these four or five big issues are all interconnected. And and obviously riding on streetcars and riding on the subway and even taking the go in for the us 905ers, those are important factors. Yeah, and it's it's something that really hits uh, close to home. I mean... I, I grew up uh, knowing that the TTC was the better way. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, we've got to pay attention to it and make sure that we address those safety concerns and, and how people feel about their safety. So they need to actually be safe, but they also need to feel safe when they're riding public transit. We also need to get those ridership numbers up coming out of the pandemic. They, they still haven't gotten back to the pre-pandemic levels. And mm-hmm. uh, that's been taking time because we know people are slower to come back into the core of the city for different reasons. And so right now, uh, there is a public safety issue. Uh, There's a 43% increase in incidences on the TTC. And, um, and so, you know, I have a five point plan because it's it's just not one approach. Some are going to take longer, they cost more, others are more immediate and, um, and respond to people's immediate sense of safety. John Tory was very um, in the fall. I thought I thought aggressive in a, in a good way about asking people to come back to their offices and and making businesses incentivize people to come back to their offices. We probably know work is if it's never going to be the same again. Maybe some people think that, but but it's not going to be the same anytime soon. What would what would a Mitzi Hunter as mayor say about the idea of of working from home? We're going to have even buildings like this one. Um, there's there's too much vacancy in the offices. There's a lot of huge buildings here that that you know will all be impacted if people don't come back to those buildings and work. Yeah, I think that hybrid um, is something that people uh, learned over the pandemic that it does it does work and we can still still be productive. At the same time, you know we've got other cities um, that uh, Halifax, for instance, where you know they have a higher return mm-hmm. uh, to the foot traffic in the downtown than we do here, and so that's definitely something that uh, that we have to pay attention to and uh, and give people reasons uh, to travel into the core of the city starting with making sure that they feel safe on on public transit that's a a major factor in uh, in in people uh commuting in and uh, and and feeling that they have access to the core of the city mm. uh you talked about Ontario place on Thursday um as a native torontonian it must it must mean a lot to you it's it always i grew up in london but even just taking trips up here to a concert at the whirling around stage or the water slides or the bumper boats it always meant something to me, and I know friends from Toronto, um, it was kind of sad to see it become decrepit. It needs something, but I know you want to hear a lot more from Torontonians about what they want before all of this from the province just gets pushed through. What can you do in terms of that getting that response? Yeah, and don't forget the swan rides. The swans were there. That's right. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, and the bouncy pits and whatnot. We got a little old for that at a certain point in time. 
So, you know, definitely. And I, I actually um, I passed by Ontario Place on the weekend and, you know, really looked at um, at the facilities and, and, and they're showing their age and, yeah. and they need they need some attention. Uh, a real bright spot is uh, is some work that was done in the Trillium Park area that took a parking lot and created beautiful um, bike paths and green space and trees. Um, indigenous trees were planted there. And it really shows that uh, that we can. Um, evolve our, our public use and and that's what's needed right now. I have sort of a three rigorous test that I, I, I'm putting out there because when we are taking these um, provincial and uh, and city assets, we have to make sure that we're making decisions that really do serve the public and not just now but well into the future. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you know wanting to make sure that that this space preserves public access and that it expands it, um, especially access to the waterfront, um, which once you sell that off, you don't get it back. So yeah. want to make sure that that access is protected. It needs to also be beautiful and attractive as well. You know, we want to make sure, and I'm not going to be the mayor of no, that, you know, we don't yeah. want, um, you know, big, uh, uh, you know, attractive things in Toronto, because I actually think the opposite, that we have to say yes to the right things for our city and uh, making sure this remains an attraction for tourism, for the economy, for jobs. And then finally, you know, the third test is about um, accessibility and affordability. You know, this this is our our waterfront. This is a, a public asset. And, and we want to make sure that uh, people can actually afford to go there and to participate in what is being offered. Like, I think there's a there's a public private balance. I even look at that we have to utilize. And like I said, the last 15 years, we, we just have fallen down in, in that department. I look at at Bud stage and I think, well, people are coming in to see, you know, some of the best musical acts on the planet. And they're coming from all over the place. There's people that fly in for shows there. So they they spend hotel dollars and restaurant dollars and transit dollars and, and all that stuff. All those shows used to be, as you'd remember, up at uh, in the summer at Kingswood at Canada's Wonderland. That's great, but it doesn't bring people to the downtown core. So there has to be that balance to where, yeah, you can go with your family through a bike ride, but we do need private industry to have, have something. Navy Pier in Chicago is the best example I can look at. And if you could transplant so many concepts from there to here but that's where i think people struggle with with the spa idea they struggle right now with this therm idea because they think it's almost it's almost too private and it's going to be too exclusive do i have that right I think you do. And and I think it is the sense of, and maybe it's how this project was uh, presented. There's too much secrecy around it. People don't really know. Um, let's see what happens at the public consultations. I know that um, there are consultations happening April 18th and beyond. Um, the city has provided a report, you know, some caution mm-hmm. around, uh, you know, environmental assessment. You know, this is, this project is right on the edge of our water. Um, and, uh, and it's a long-term commitment. So, you know, I believe that that um, this project needs to explain uh, how it's going to benefit uh, Torontonians and and the people of the province. Uh, you know, I've got my three rigorous tests. You know, does it meet the the public um, expansion um, mm-hmm. opportunity? Is it beautiful and attractive? And is it accessible and affordable for for the people of Toronto and, and Ontario to to visit? So, if you get elected in late June, have you got enough time to sort of slow this process mm-hmm. down? Get that consultation. Make sure that that everything meets the standard of of you uh, of, of what you and council want. There's like this isn't going to get something that gets rammed through during this election process or soon afterwards from from the Ford government. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. I mean, Ontario Place is a provincial asset. And um, and so the decisions that are being made around Ontario Place um, rest in the realm of the province. Yet the city does need to have its approvals. And and you want to have something that's sitting on the city's waterfront that, mm-hmm. you know, reflects uh, what what the people of, of the city want and need and expect. So, you know, that requires that the province and the proponents listen mm-hmm. uh, during the consultation process. So, so I believe that we will be heard and, uh, and I will certainly be making my voice known uh, as this moves forward. Are you, last thing for you, are you spotting that there's, I think there's a lot of genuine interest in this election. I think we recognize in Toronto how important this is. I think the amount of people that want to do this job like yourself, willing to sacrifice and give up not just time, but what you were already doing means something. Are you noticing at all that that's a contrast from where we were with the provincial election? I hate to think that that we were apathetic the last time around, but I, I want I want to know if you could sort of contrast the energy you're feeling now for Toronto. And we we just we all want to get this decision right. And all these decisions we're talking about are really important for our future as well. Yeah, you're right about that. I'm actually noticing far more engagement around uh, this election. And, you know, maybe it's coming of spring and the, mm-hmm. the hint of summer and warmer weather. Uh, people are more engaged and they're talking to me when I'm out and about in the city. Um, just People that heard me on the Greg Brady show or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they've seen me, you know, on TV they're, and they're reaching yeah. out and, and I welcome that. They're, you know, sending messages through th- social media and, uh, and and through email and in other ways. And and I think it's, it's really where people get the mm. sense that this is an important election. I know that I'm running in this election because I want to lead a revival in Toronto where, where it's a city that works for everyone, where everyone feels that they're included and they're on the inside in the corridors of power of, at City Hall because this is their city. This is where they live. We need to make sure that people feel that they are included in the city, they belong in the city, they can afford mm. to live in this city, and that the decisions that affect them have their input and their voice. Yeah, I think nothing's universal, but I think a lot of Torontonians feel like we're, we're getting a second chance here. We're getting a do-over, and, and we want to get this right in uh, in late June. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it uh, again for doing this, and, and always when you got something to say, we want to be here to, to help you amplify it. Thank you so much. Mitzi Hunter is uh, running for mayor of Toronto on June 26th. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Our next guest is uh, former deputy mayor of the city of Toronto. She is running for mayor. Wants your vote on June 26th and is joining us right now um, with something that is brand new this morning on Easter Monday regarding safety on Toronto streets. She is Anna Bailau. Anna, it's great to have you back on. Um, thank you very much for uh, for the time this morning. Good morning, Greg. Always a pleasure to be here with you. You were at the uh, you were also at the beaches uh, Easter uh, parade. I think we'll just like raise your hand if you're a mayoral candidate and you weren't at the beaches uh, Easter parade. But. <laughs> That's uh, you were there. It's it's quite the tradition. I think it's grown actually o- over the years. But I know great to to meet people and find out what's on their mind with regard to what they Absolutely. want in city politics. Absolutely, it was a fantastic event. Congratulations to the organizers uh, and everybody that came out. You could clearly see people enjoying themselves, families, the kids. Everybody was having a blast and uh, and great conversations. Nice to get these things back. Uh, that's for sure. We've we've missed them for too long. Safety. Um, you are uh, you're putting out something regarding safer subways, safer streets. Um, I don't know that it's, uh, I, and I don't know if it's the 
most prominent issue, but it's certainly it's all interconnected because safety is connected to transit. Transit is connected to our roads. Getting around the city is connected to doing more. You'll do more things in a city if you're feeling safe. So it, it kind of begins and ends with people feeling safe. What are you announcing this morning? Yeah, that's absolutely it, uh, Greg. Challenges that uh, we're seeing on RTDC that we've been talking about lately are actually challenges that we're, we're seeing across the city, right? They're not limited to the TTC, and that's why I'm putting forward a public safety plan that addresses the issues with the TTC uh, and, and in particularly our subways, but it also addresses uh, on a broader basis on our streets as well. It's not an either-or plan. It's a comprehensive plan and that has actions that need and can be taken immediately, and there's actions that uh, uh, will be taken in the next few months. You were one of the first candidates to say, we need the, the, the big phone companies, Bell Rogers, tell us all to be on board with this. And we lack something in Toronto right now, as you know, that Montreal already has and, and most major American cities have uh, underground. And that's the ability to use people's cell phones. And just having that security blanket there for people um, probably is an incentive to be back on transit. But what are the practical things that can be done? How do you how do you put three billion dollar you know companies on notice and tell them this is what they need to bring to the table and this is what they need to do? So, so Greg, you're you're right. I was. I'm not one of the first one. I was the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as I started talking about uh, considering running for mayor, this was one of the issues that I brought forward. Um, and that then I put the telcos on notice because there are $30 million of contracts that the city awards uh, for cell phone services to the different companies. Um, but I also think we, we need to bring the uh, federal government into the conversation. You know, these companies are regulated by the federal government. So it is important that uh, that we, we push them to, uh, to compel the telcos to have this service. It is a convenience, but above all, through what we're living uh, is actually a safety matter. It, it is a public safety matter. Um, and so we need to sell services on the TTC. We also need more staff. You know, as, as you can see, the, the report that, uh, that indicated today that uh, with the extra staff and uh, the extra police officers, the incidents decreased. We need to ensure that we have uh, presence on our stations. We have 75 stations. And many of them, uh, sometimes in some of the answers, don't have anybody. So if there's an incident that is starting to happen, a situation that is occurring, um, we need to make sure that we have TTC staff on our stations to deal with this. Um, uh, uh, supervisors, cleaning staff uh, that are there to support the people and to um, support the outreach workers, the housing workers and the police uh, when, when needed as well. It is also important that we restore the service, uh, Greg. Yeah. You know, we need we need to make sure that the the service, the buses, the subways, the frequency frequency of of the services is restored uh, to bring more people into the TTC system. I was at Union Station Friday night, um, taking the GO train in, and uh, and and just noticed it. I saw it with my own eyes around you know seven o'clock, and then certainly later around eleven o'clock that it's busy and it feels protected. And I think that's where we're at. I, I think I think we all are just going to breathe a little bit easier, like we do at airports, like we do at at you know major sporting events, where we're like if something kicks off. There's somebody here, but we you're right. It's it's unions. One thing we got to do it at, you know, Woodbine Station at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night. People have to feel safe or uh, or Runnymede Station, you know, at the same time, 11 o'clock on a Friday night. We, we, we've yeah. got to really make this all encompassing or, or, or if it is on the street or on yeah. a park that that happens. And that's why it is 
important uh, to expand the Toronto Community Crisis Service. This is something that I'm also supporting as well. This is a service that was introduced uh, to deal with people in crisis, mental health and, and other sources of crisis that are more appropriately answered by uh, workers other than the police. Right now, they only respond to 60%. They only cover 60% of the city. We need to make sure that these services are available for 100% of of the city. Uh, This is important services. um, And by using data and interdivisional coordination of these services, then you can start deploying the most appropriate uh, service to the situation as well. So we need to improve the better uh, the data to have better policies as well. Greg, we Mm. can't solve what we don't know. So we need to make sure that we fully understand when we're talking about public safety, you know, there's there's different components. There's the police. There's the Toronto Community Crisis Service. There's the more staff on TTC. There's the cell service. There's it needs to be a comprehensive plan that uh, that addresses the issues on the TTC, that addresses the issues on our on our streets um, and that recognizes that there are actions that need to be taken immediately and actions that take a, a bit longer to to uh, to take like bail reform or or to make sure that we deal with the, the the issues that we need the other orders of government at the table the mental health issues the housing mm-hmm. issues the root causes of many of these problems as well anna bylaws our guest on 640 toronto toronto today um what about cameras i think there's an important conversation to have there and i'd even look at london and go somewhere 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 along the line in in london england they got it right. They made CCTV a massive priority. And that's two-pronged. One, there are cameras everywhere, and every resident knows it. The second is police release that footage on such a regular basis. I think that goes hand-in-hand, hand, that police, Absolutely. when getting CCTV out there, um, that, that, that we are able, eventually, you're going to be able to catch these criminals if people are going to be able to, to see the footage. Yeah, it is part of what I'm proposing as well. It is an increased security com- uh, camera coverage across the TTC. It is important uh, to have it um, in in all uh, uh, modes of transportation. Uh, we have uh, been deploying it on the subway. Our our streetcars still don't have it. Uh, so I, it is something that I'm proposing as well is the increased security camera c- coverage across the TTC, which would help with the incidents. Absolutely, getting uh, uh, the situation at hand, uh, but also to better collect that data to understand what's going on in in the different parts of the system as well. I'd also um, look at at uh, at the cameras and think that's massively important in terms of uh, in terms of making the employees uh, feel safe. The employees don't want to step into something and get into potentially potentially a he said he said he said she said in any type of scenario like that. Anybody who's doing the right things doesn't mind being on videotape because it'll show they did the right things. There's that factor too. Yeah, one of the things that um, we need to consider as we develop this public safety plan is that, especially in the transit system, we need to protect our um, passengers, absolutely. We need to increase the ridership, absolutely. But it is also very important that we protect our workers, all workers, not just the operators. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I, I would support the amending of, of the criminal code to include all transit workers be uh, protective of uh, unacceptable harassment at work as well. We know this is an issue as well on our TTC, and it is important that uh, we cover all workers. Everybody should be uh, feeling safe to to go to work. Doesn't matter if you're uh, an operator, a driver, a cleaner on our TTC system, or if you're riding the the subway. Safety mm. needs to be provider provided. 
and and ridership needs to be uh, to be increased. And the only way that you're going to increase the ridership on the TTC is if you provide safety and if you increase the services so that you have a reliable and convenient TTC, a TTC that is uh, equipped with cell phones so you feel better, a TTC mm-hmm. that has people and eyes and support on the platforms, a TTC um, that is safe and that is convenient. Anna Bylaw is our guest on 640 Toronto, Toronto Today. You're well aware that um, the previous mayor, John Tory, had a relationship with with Rogers and a paid uh, stipend, if you will, $100,000 a year from Rogers. Do do you look at that and go, that must have got in the way of getting this done with the telecoms? I mean, is there any other way to observe it that, you know, we need a mayor that doesn't have that sort of relationship and conflict? Uh, We need a mayor that doesn't take no for an answer. Uh, That's the kind of person that I am. And uh, that's why I put the telcos already on notice that we have $30 million in contracts that uh, will be awarded to to, uh, companies that provide reliable uh, Wi-Fi on the the TTC. And that's why I will push to have the federal government involved in this and to make sure that they compel the telcos to provide Wi-Fi on the TTC. We got a few minutes left. Let's talk about Ontario Place. Everybody uh, had an idea about what to do with Ontario Place. Yours, yours is rather unique if, for our audience that sort of shut down the news cycle Thursday afternoon. What would it entail, and why is the Ontario Science Center involved in in where you think Ontario Place should go? You know what? When I start looking at at the proposal that uh, the Ontario government uh, is putting forward, what I look is what are the priorities of Torontonians, and what what I know the priorities are are about fixing services, services like the TTC, services like uh, recreational centers and and services, uh, and building housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't see anywhere that a priority for Torontonians is to subsidize a private spa with $500 million. So for me, that's a big red flag uh, because what we need is to have uh, the services fixed and uh, and housing built. And that's why this uh, uh, proposal of having the lands where um, the, those parking lots at the Ontario Centre are providing uh, housing for Torontonians uh, was appealing to me because it's something that the provincial government uh, has uh, committed to. Uh, they, they say they want to build 1.5 million homes in Toronto. Uh, 280,000 uh, of those homes need to, uh, sorry, in Ontario and yeah. 280,000 in, in Toronto. I share that commitment. I do strongly believe that we need housing and in particular affordable housing in here. That should be the principles that we're guiding our policies, not to spend five hundred million dollars on subsidizing a, a, a private spa we need to make sure that we have excellent public uh, serve, uh, spaces like the Ontario place uh, where the Ontario science could be as a state-of-the-art facility and we could have a solution that would build housing that would build community facilities where the building is on the Ontario uh, science center for that community as well so it could be a win-win uh, situation where we have a facility that brings families, that brings uh, tourists to to the, uh, the Ontario place, but keeps it public uh, and uh, doesn't mm. subsidize a private spa that most Torontonians won't be able to uh, afford to the tune of mm. maybe, maybe even more, $500 million. The priorities of Torontonians, I keep hearing in these many conversations, mm. is fixing the services and building housing. People want to have their lives easier and and made more affordable. And um, I don't think uh, a a $500 million garage for a private spa is going to make any of that. 
Um, I got a minute here. Um, many voters love the idea, love the idea of uploading um, the DVP and Gardner back to the province. But I've probably heard more people say than not the province is just going to say no. How how can you get this done? Uh, Greg, we have uh, the biggest economic engine in this province and in this city uh, with um, the need to have a conversation about uh, the tools that we use uh, to pay for the many of the services that we have. We have highways that were da- that were put back on the on the backs of the city back in the 90s. These used to be provincial highways. Like many other things, it's not the only issue. Uh, they're paid. Uh, they're paid to uh, by by all uh, Torontonians, unlike other highways from other cities around us. Uh, I am asking for uh, a mandate on this. I am running on this. We need to make sure that we have a mayor that has the mandate to go to the province um, and and require a fair deal for Toronto. It is not fair that we're having our services cut while. Uh, We are uh, the only municipality in the region that is paying for highways, that about 50% of the people using it are from the region, that uh, we're spending to the tune of over $200 million to maintain and rebuild those highways. We need that money to fix the services. And truth be told, that the provincial government has been coming at the end of the year uh, with a check to to fill the deficit uh, of the city of Toronto. So. You know, we need to have a conversation about how we ensure that we have um, a sustainable plan for the biggest economic engine of this country and mm. a plan that fixes services in the city yeah. and, 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 uh, and builds housing. And like the premier says, mm. there's only one taxpayer, one taxpayer. And that taxpayer is actually paying a lot more in HSD, for example, because everything is getting more expensive. And again, the city of Toronto does not get any of that money. I know. You go to the store today, you I, pay a lot more for what you you used to pay, and all that that HST yeah, goes to the federal I, and provincial government. I'd love to have a conversation as to how we have a city tax, like many U.S. cities do. So maybe that's our next conversation. And I got we a blast. Need a fair deal for Toronto, Greg. We uh, need a fair deal for Toronto. We yeah. need to fix this. Yeah services and build the housing. Anna, thanks for the time this morning. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Anna Bailau joining us, mayoral candidate. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Write a passage for parents uh, to sort of be involved on their uh, on their kids' university applications. It's that type of year, kind of year, when um, you end up getting some letters back that are good or, or bad, and you also decide... Uh, where you're going to go. I remember this time of year, especially it was about like grad schools, like you'd be writing your final exams and you'd be finding out I applied to a few uh, law schools. And um, just for the record, a few law schools decided to um, to not not uh, offer me acceptance. A few did and a few uh, also did. So um, but this this is really interesting because I think we think the game's changed a little bit and maybe the high school marks that we used to get are not, are not the how we evaluate uh, students now in high school. But Sheba and I saw the same story in the Toronto Star, and I'll give you the headline. Janet Hurley wrote the piece, and it's called When 94% is Not 94, What University of Waterloo's Engineering Admission Tool Reveals About High School Grades. And this just, Sheba, this looks like a super um, competitive, competitive program to get into undergrad engineering at Waterloo. But also, um, times have changed for 
not just the marks you need, but people are putting like personal profiles together and video interviews and and whatnot. Like it's like applying for a big job. It's not just here's my (laughs) transcripts. Let me know when you're when you're done with them. It's a lot more than that now. Well, that's what you and I had to do. Right. That's like mm-hmm. you just hand it in. You study as hard as you can for those exams. You submit those marks. Uh, I think you did OAC as well. Right. Yep. I mean, did yeah. You, and they would and take your it. best six OAC courses was yes. your average. And that's basically yes. all you really sent um, to, to the universities. And you didn't even tell them what I don't think we applied for certain disciplines. Maybe I did, but I didn't. Pick, you don't pick your marks, obviously, your courses, obviously, until you get accepted. So I don't no, I don't even don't. know what I would have put on an application in 1991. It is no so idea. different now. So now it's not only submitting your marks. It's a list of extracurriculars. It's, uh, let's say, any volunteering that you're doing, uh, working part time. It's whatever is happening in your life. This is for, I mean, I've heard of this in the States, but it's mm-hmm. really gotten so competitive in in Canada now, specifically in Ontario. So when I read this article, it sort of shook me because let's say an 85% average from one particular high school is not taken as seriously as an 85% from another. So this is, this is called the adjustment factor. Now, I'm learning that this has been around for a very long time. It's very subtle, but in terms of Waterloo University specifically, they have an a list, a very precise and detailed list of high schools and which ones they deem, I guess, to take more seriously, which ones have a higher adjustment factor and which ones have a lower one and which ones are somewhere in the middle. So when this this really caught my eye and yours as well, because we both have kids who are going to be going into university in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something to keep in mind. What surprised me is uh, some of the schools that were on this list. I mean, it, for the highest adjustment factor school in the city of Toronto is UCC, Upper Canada College. This is an elite boys private school, one of the most elite in the entire country. The who's who of Toronto's elite, their boys go to UCC. So for yeah. them to come forward and say, this is the top school where marks are adjusted just to get into university. And then what happens to those kids who are getting 80s and 90s in high school and they have a high adjustment factor at their high school? They go into university, that first year of university, they're not making it. It's completely different. They're bringing in, you know, Fs and Ds and Cs and they're completely out of their league. So it affects them and they want to, universities want to avoid having to kick them out of the program. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see um, marks like there was there'd be no way really to to look it up because people would would claim privacy. But it'd be really interesting to see, um, you know, what marks from from what disciplines in high school trans transmitted into good, say, first and second year marks in those programs. So much of it is situational. I think we know that. I think you get a, you know, good roommate and and a good uh, floor in your <laughs> in your dorm, right? You yes. it, some kids have to work like a lot of hours. Think about now, if you if you're going and trying to pay the rent in doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be Toronto, London, Kitchener, Hamilton, wherever and you got to work 20 hours a week to help your family pay for your costs. Well, that's going to affect your bottom line and how much you can study as well. Are you on a sports team? Um, you know, are you back and forth? There's so, so many, many factors. Yeah, so many factors. And uh, and I, 
I never it I, it never occurred to me when I'd be going to class with with people and we were spreading out like I'm, I never looked at them and said I wonder what their high school marks were. It never occurred to me, and I wonder if it does now because of how competitive it is. Oh, absolutely! And once you're in that program, why would you even think about that twice? They got in; they were good enough mm-hmm. to get in their marks. Uh, but you know, there are some. So Waterloo has been so forthcoming about this; they're being very open about this. Uh, journalists requested their list a few years ago; they were given the list. Uh, but there are certain universities that say no. We absolutely do not use a tool to differentiate high schools. University of Toronto, McMaster University, Western for their Ivy Business Administration program, which is very competitive. They're coming forward and saying, no, we don't use anything. Queen's University has um, sort of jumped around and not really given a straight answer on that. So who knows what they're doing? It's just something to really keep in mind that now it's not only how competitive the university is that you're applying to, what high school you go to. What high school? Yeah, which never would have occurred to me uh, before. And and the, the last... McLean's always does the big university issue with the surveys and whatnot. My wife was even asking me, she's like, do they still, you know, publish that? And I think they do because our kid is probably, well, he's 16 months away. He's going into grade 12, but we want to do a couple campus tours even in the spring. There's one at McMaster. We're probably going to go to McMaster on a Saturday so and just fun. check it out in, in mid-May. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited for you. What an yeah. exciting time for uh, as you as a parent and then him as uh, It depends how he be- behaves, too. We might just leave him there and check him into like a like a two-star motel for the night and say, you know, you tell me what Hamilton's like. But um, <laughs> But some of these marks from 2018, they actually haven't moved up that much like if you're going into an arts degree you know max says we need you to be at a 75 carlton's a 78 um there's some of the other universe queens is an 80 but some of the other schools like a ryerson or an ottawa uh, a trent or more in that 70 to 73 range so i think we do have this perception western's weird western's an 83.5 for both their undergrad for arts and their undergrad for sciences when i went to western my recollection is it was seventy five to get it was seventy five to get in, but it was eighty to get guaranteed into residence. If you didn't have eighty guaranteed into residence, you had to live off campus. They would only take residence students if you were in if you had an eighty or more uh, average in really? your six courses. And I, I felt just short of that by like a couple of percentage points, to be honest. Would you have lived in res? Yeah, I would have. Yeah, absolutely, because I moved out from my parents anyway. So I just oh, lived in did. a three bedroom apartment. Oh yeah, apartment. that's right. With like six guys, right? Or well, the first year was three guys, and then okay. and then it turned out it was yeah, third and fourth year were was big houses. But I, I would have loved the residence experience. And I, by the way, I think most parents now, especially coming off of COVID and how high school has changed and lack of socialization, most parents want their kids, I think, in residence and want them socializing and want them. Yeah, I want them kind res. of partying, to be honest, because kids don't party like you used to or we, no, or we the used to. No, socialization. Well, they lost out a lot in high school, right? So I think they're trying to make it up for them. I lived in res at U of T. It was phenomenal. It was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. I th- But I think that's you, your, your point about UCC is really, really interesting that the idea I wouldn't <laughs> parents shouldn't want their kids marks to be inflated because then they start paying the big. I mean, UCC is not cheap, but then you start paying the big bucks to go to university and if if your kid's not ready because they've just their marks are on steroids for that those last couple of years, they're not doing them any favors when all of a sudden they're getting 60s in uh, in in undergrad courses. 